Irene Favel, I'm 75. I went to a residence and school in Muskogo in 1941 to 1949. And I had a very, very rough life. I was mistreated in every way. As a young girl, she was seven year old. She was pregnant. And what they did, she had her baby. They, they took the baby, wrapped it up in a nice pink outfit, took it downstairs. I was in the kitchen with the nun for cooking supper. They took the baby into the, uh, what do you call that, where they make a fire and all that to heat up the school, furnace room. They threw that little baby in there and burnt it alive. All you could hear was, that was it. And you could smell the, the, you know, the flesh cooking. Uh-uh. It's a big mistake when people say we were treated good. No way. So after my brother got better, he needed to go back to the mush hole. And we didn't go back for that next year. But it was some time after that, during the time that, um, that we were out of school for the summer, that he had, and we were going to go back. And he told me, he said, you know what happened to all of those kids that were there at the mush hole? He said, do you remember that? And I said, yeah. I said, our, our dorm was just full of girls. And he said, yeah, so was ours full of boys. And he said, um, did you, uh, do you remember, do you know what happened to them? And I said, no. And he said, they called in the army and they, and they took them to the army base and they, and they shot them. They stood them all along this big hole and they shot them and it was as, as um, when the bullets hit them, they fell into the, into the uh, hole. And, um, and he said, when they were all done, he said, those that, that had, hadn't fallen into the hole, uh, some of them were still alive. He said, some of them were still alive in the hole. And he said, they came along, and I want to say a bulldozer. That what comes to my mind, but I'm not really sure that my brother had said a bulldozer. They came along with a big machine anyway, and they, and they shoved them all in that big hole and covered it up. And, um, and he says, um, that's what happened to them. And I must have been about eight, I guess, or seven or eight, somewhere through there. Let's see, that must have been 43 or 44. Uh, here we are, second day of the dig, near the mushroom. And this is an area about 100 yards from the school, where we found consistent bone samples. And these regular types of buttons, probably off of, well, clothing, obviously. But the interesting thing is here and at the Glebe site, they're of the same style as if they're off a standard uniform or something. Could be a child's button off a school uniform. And welcome. This is Kevin Andy Diggle Strong Voice, and this is Here We Stand. It's July 31st. Eyewitnesses to mass murder in Canada. This program is been going for over seven years trying to bring the authentic voices of these crimes to the public airwaves in the face of massive censorship, the kind of censorship we've experienced again in a grotesque way over the last week, when the perpetrator, the head fiduciary officer of this corporation that did these crimes, the Church of Rome, Jorge Bogolio, actually got away with saying, oh yes, it was genocide. And then he goes on his merry way. No accountability, even though under the laws that they cite all the time, the UN Convention on Genocide, he is then to be prosecuted and punished. And what's interesting is he used exactly the same words that Justin Trudeau did on June 4th, 2019, when he said, yes, it was genocide. A lawyer's crafted term. Now, we're going to look today at some very important updates about the breaking news that's been happening over the last while and our response to it. But I want to get into the show, into the meaning of words, because we're all controlled by words and the false use of words. And that's a very important thing in terms of how we break out of the mental captivity. Now, I want to start by summarizing for people who don't know, who haven't been following our our uh, postings at murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates. 
uh, a posting from yesterday, the Pope actually admitted genocide after coming to Canada over the last week. And let me just read this announcement for people who don't know about it. His admission of genocide has actually sparked a motion at the United Nations to have him arrested. And this is not only to have him arrested, but under the UN Convention on Genocide, a convicted criminal body or any group or head of a group that admits to genocide has to be prosecuted and punished. That's the UN law. And of course, I hear you all out there saying, well, who trusts the UN anyway? That's not the point. The point is that it's an amazing pulling back of the mask again, because effectively what they're saying is we can admit to these crimes and then nothing ever happens. That's telling everybody these laws don't exist. Their system doesn't exist. It's a big lie. And when people recognize there's a big lie going on, they're a lot more open to change. And that's why the value of these things. Now, the other good thing about this, though, is that the if this move at the UN gets any kind of headway, and this is from indigenous people at the UN, by the way, and one other nation, we can't disclose which nation, but they are trying to bring a motion to have the Vatican uh, prosecuted and the Bergoglio arrested uh, for admitting to genocide. The other good thing, though, is that if the Vatican Bank is under scrutiny, there's no way it can sign financial agreements with Rome, and that's exactly why Bergoglio came to Canada. As you know, July 23rd, he signed an agreement to underwrite the Vatican, the uh, Chinese expansion, economic expansion all over the world to a tune of almost three quarters of a trillion dollars. Well, that whole thing is in jeopardy if the Vatican is under investigation. And even if it isn't, it's also in, under jeopardy for reasons we're going to talk about. Um, and so there's that announcement. I urge you to go to murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates to see that latest announcement. Um, and I think it was no accident that Bergoglio scurried out of Canada for another reason, because the last stop he was to make was in Iqaluit, which is the capital of Nunavut in the Inuit territory. And just before he came, the city council passed a unanimous motion nullifying tax exemptions for the Catholic Church in their territories. And of course, that got all the local clergy all upset and everything. But the point is, they timed it just before his arrival to make a statement. And the world is awakening to this monster wrapped in papal camouflage, this monster that's been responsible for the genocide for centuries, of which we're all a part. And we're going to talk about that, too. But the important thing is to understand that we can break out of the system. It often doesn't happen until we get serious hits in the head forcing us out. But how, regardless of what happens, the possibility of happening more, more is, is very real. In fact, this confession of guilt by him, Bergoglio, when he admitted to genocide, it really gives the green light to start defunding Rome in a big way. And that's the announcement I want to make, because um, not only are city councils being contacted by our movement all over Canada to say, look, you should emulate what they did in none of it. You, if you allow tax exemptions to the Catholic and the Anglican and the United Churches that killed over 60,000 children, you're aiding and abetting a crime. You're using public money to fund the cover-up of genocide, which under the law is as serious as the crime itself. And so, for example, one of the actions we're planning in September is we're going to present a bill for over $1 billion to the Canadian government. Because over the last two years, believe it or not, folks, that is the amount of Canadian taxpayers' money that was sent to the Vatican Bank. It's under a hideous thing called the Financial Concordat. These are secret agreements between the Vatican and over 100 governments, including America, England, Canada, most countries in the world. Um, and it channels up to 1% to 2% of total revenue into the Vatican Bank. Well, that totaled $680 million since 2020 in Canada alone. Nearly a billion dollars of your money is funding genocide, human trafficking, arms dealing, all of these crimes. By doing that, you're breaking the law. By paying taxes in Canada, you federal taxes, you are committing a crime against humanity. You're aiding and abetting a convicted criminal power. So all of you are doing that. The only way out of that is to stop it. And we're going to get into a little bit about that in the, the second announcement I have, which was uh, something that's actually, it's kind of a sneak preview. It's coming out tomorrow. And some of you may recall the National Council of Common Law Assemblies. This was set up, as you know, our common law movement really got a shot in the arm with the whole COVID tyranny in March 2020 when it began. Our Republic of Canada took off, increased tenfold in the number of people who signed up as citizens. And we had these common law assemblies spread out all over Canada. 
Now, this we formed a National Council of Youth Assemblies. September 8, 2020, they passed a law banning COVID measures, saying we don't have to take these these measures, and if you try to impose them on us, we're going to arrest you and try them try you in our republic courts. Well, the NCCLA, the National Council of Common Law Assemblies, tomorrow is going to release a thing called a public reparations law and premonire, nullifying federal taxes in Canada. Now, let me explain a little bit about what that is. It's going to be posted, like I say, murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates tomorrow. There'll be a YouTube posting about it too. But this public reparations law, it's basically the fact that Canada and these churches owes the people of Canada, all of them, billions of dollars, not only for the uh, ripping off of their tax funds and everything, but the tax-exempt status of these churches is aiding and abetting their crimes. So the law, in, in essence, says that because of this history of genocide, we are owed massive reparations, not just the Native people, but every single one of us. And uh, because of that, the National Council of the Common Law Assemblies passed a law. Now, don't forget, this is a valid law, because it, when tr in English common law tradition that governs Canada, when 12 or more people gather together and pass a statement, it becomes true, whether they're members of a jury in a trial, in a court trial, or whether people in an assembly. Twelve or more of you can sign a charter, join the Republic, pass your own laws. And we know they're valid because the police have told us that. Members of Parliament have told us that. They just don't want people knowing that because they don't want the, the authority of the corporatized Parliament usurped. But here's what the, the law says. They, they pass six points. First of all, the law states federal taxes in Canada are, are hereby and forever nullified and are returned to the people. In other words, that means you withhold your federal taxes, you pass a law in your community doing that, you put it in a community trust fund, and you keep that federal tax money in your community. That's over $20 billion a year, folks. Secondly, a and this is a really fun part, a universal common law lien is now placed on the wealth of the Crown of England, the Government of Canada, and the Catholic, Anglican, and United Churches of Canada, including a lien on other lands, assets, and properties. That's reparations, but also to stop these criminal uh, organizations from operating. So what that means is crown land, any wealth, any land, any federal property in Canada is now ours, and it can be lawfully seized. Now, we've already started doing that. Indigenous nations, traditional nations, have already started doing that all over Canada. We're an alliance and treaty alliance uh, between our republic and the Chilcot National Congress. And other places in Canada, Native people on their own have just been doing that, spontaneously throwing the Catholic Church off their land, taking over the building. We can now, we're not only lawfully allowed to do that, folks, we're obligated to do that under international law. We cannot allow criminal societies to operate in our own territory or we're complicit. And Bergoglio's statement of admission has just put another nail in their coffin. Thank you very much, Jorge. Uh, third point, the people and their sheriffs or deputized police are empowered by this law and its accompanying warrant to enforce this universal lien and seize the wealth, lands, assets, and properties of these governments and churches using reasonable force. That means you can evict the priest from his church and take over the building. Four, the police and authorities of, Can uh, of Canada are obligated to insist to assist in the enforcement of this law and to refrain from interfering with its enforcement under pain of prosecution for obstructing justice. That's what you say when the cops show up, you hand them this warrant, which you can get. We're gonna put the PDF online at that website, run it off and use it. You just hand it to the cops and say, stand back or you're obstructing justice. You know, every time we did that, when we occupied churches in Vancouver, cops stood back. Fifth point, all special privileges, rights, benefits, and diplomatic arrangements and concordat agreements between Canada and the Vatican are hereby and forever nullified. And finally, the Church of Rome, that's the Catholics, the Anglican Church of England, and the United Church of Canada are hereby and forever disestablished and banished from operating in Canada. The officers, agents, and employees of these churches are ordered to stand down from their offices on pain of arrest and prosecution. Now, this law will take effect at midnight tonight, 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time on Monday, August 1st, 2022. It is a promulgated as a law across Canada and Canada. It, this public safety law has the full force and effect of the law and will be enforced by sheriffs of the council, deputized police, and the public. Now, like I say, tomorrow, 
go to uh, murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates, run it off, use it, and write to us, Republic National Council at protonmail.com, if you want to get involved in an organized uh, movement to enforce these and seize these properties and assets. Don't try it by yourself. Always do everything as a group. Now, that final point, in the title of the law, it says the uh, law of Premonire, and I want to tell you what that is. It's a medieval English law that was passed in the 1300s to stop Vatican control of the country. It, it says, the law of Premonire says, the Catholic Church is not allowed to take money out of our country because it's a foreign power, and anyone who does that is committing treason. So in other words, the Catholic Church cannot tithe, it cannot uh, have tax-exempt status under the traditional English common law of Premonire. And if anyone tries to do that, like a priest, a bishop, a cardinal, a pope, then they're breaking the law and they can be arrested for treason. We're invoking the law of Premonire. The law and tradition is on our side. And by the way, a, a, a note on the meaning of words, pope from papa is not the word we use. He is not a religious figure. The Church of Rome is not neither a church nor a government or a state. It's a corporate empire. He has all of the titles of the Roman Empire. But the Roman Emperor was known as um, uh, Pontifex Maximus, the great bridge between heaven and earth. The Emperor Aurelian and Constantine took that title. So did uh, the Bishop of Rome. To become bigger than the two other bishops in Constantinople and Antioch, he said, no, I'm the top bishop now. I'm called the your father. Well, unless Bergoglio has kids stashed around we don't know about, he's neither a father and he certainly isn't holy. So that's the thing to keep in mind. We call him the emperor. We call it the Church of Rome. We don't go along with their linguistic neural programming. Okay, that law is very important, and I urge all of you to get involved in that. Because if you don't, you've got nobody to blame but yourselves. Now, another important point. We had, as well, the, the events are just coming in uh <laughs> like a big snowball effect. As a matter of fact, I've, for the first time in years, I've been getting calls from the international corporate media saying, how do you respond to the Francis's admission of guilt? And I said, well, he should be in jail. How do you think I respond? How any of us should respond? You respond to an admission of mass murder by arresting the bastard. I mean, why is that such a um, you know, rocket science issue for people? It's not that complicated. That is, if you take the crime seriously. And like I said earlier, and the reason I played those voices at the beginning of the show is this is real. Genocide is not a word. It's not some abstraction, the way Bergoglio referred to it on the plane back to Rome. He said it's a technical term. No, Jorge. It's my friend Harry Wilson lying dead in an alley. It's the bones in my hand when I was standing at the mush hole, seeing the bones of those children, which were confirmed to be children's bones by the Smithsonian Institute. And that, of course, was blacked out of the world media back in October 2011, when we did that excavation. It's even the tears of my daughter, Eleanor, when she was ripped out of my arms, according to the divorce trial that was funded by the United Church when I blew their whistle on them. That's the reality of genocide to me and many people in this country. It is not a word. And in terms of that word, gen is a Greek word meaning group. Side, C-I-D-E, means kill. Genocide means to kill a group. It doesn't mean the intent to commit certain harming to them, which is how the UN defines it. We're going to get into that in a minute, the meaning of words, how it's continually used to minimize the crime. But um, in a roundabout way, I'm getting back <laughs> to our other big announcement, which is yesterday we did a Zoom call with people in uh, eight different countries. And that is Canada, Ireland, France, Holland, Italy, Greece, New Zealand, and Australia. All of these people are involved in our what's called the Republic Alliance. It's a cross-border movement to establish sovereign common law republics like we've done in Canada. In Holland, they've already declared independence. They set up their own national republic. Uh, they don't call it a parliament. It's an assembly. They're doing the same all over. In Australia, based on my book, Common Law Training Manual, they formed 40 common law republic assemblies. It's growing, and we've formalized this alliance. We're going to start actions across borders, and our first target is going to be shutting down the Roman Catholic Church. And the, as an international criminal body, not only the cause of this genocide over the centuries, but the main financial backer of the big corporate power in the world, the rising power of China. And one of the things I'm going to mention as well today is the fact that new evidence we have 
you may have remembered the organ trafficking going on in China in 32 different hospitals around China. They bring in people now. They don't even kill them. They immobilize them, put them in a coma, keep them alive, and gradually extract their organs. First the kidneys, uh, then other things that can be removed. Finally, when they want to kill them, they take their heart and their, their liver and things like that. But the point is, this is like out of some sick science fiction movie where they keep people in these hospitals. Now, guess what? It isn't just in China. 32 in China, 10 in Africa, including at five facilities run by Catholic missionaries. And guess what? In lovely old Canada, they are constructing two organ trafficking hospitals, one outside Prince Rupert and then down the Highway of Tears, no accident there, outside Prince George. These are hospital facilities. They're operating under military and Catholic church cover, but these are organ farming and trafficking facilities where mass murder will be going on. They're not in operation yet. It's one of the things we found out. If anybody in British Columbia has any heart and mind left, then they've got to be involved in this movement of shutting this down because it could be you next. It could be your children next lying on that table, losing their organs. We're going to have more on that. That's one of our important announcements. And there's really too much to, to get into in the hour we have every week. And that's why we urge you to get in touch with us, to be part of our movement, to be part of not only the Zoom calls, but the signing of charters in your community where you can form an assembly to take back your country from these genocidal butchers and their accomplices in government, in the courts, and at every level of society. It's like there's a, a line being drawn in the sand, folks. Two powers in the world today. You've got to choose which side. You're at a crossroads. You support the corporatocracy or you support the cooperative republic movement that returns power and wealth into the hands of the people. There really are no options anymore left but those two. Governments don't exist. They're all the servants of the corporatocracy as we experience every day ad nauseum. So um, that was the general points I want to touch on. Now, the, the thing about words, very important to keep in mind. And um, at the break, we're going to listen to more of the voices of the Canadian genocide. And then at the last third of the show, I'm going to do a teach-in because we have to continually remind people of things that have been taken from memory, things that we brought out over the last 20 and 30 years, but just been swabbed out of the public memory. We have to reinsert it about the real nature of what that power is in, in Rome. Uh, from a uh, talk I was to give at Oxford University in the spring of 2016, they invited me to come and, and lecture and give a have a debate between a Catholic cleric and me about, is there any good in the Roman Catholic Church? Which, is, um, well, we know about the answer to that, but it's a very insightful lecture I gave, and so we're going to end with that. But before that, I wanted to get into this whole thing of the meaning of words. Genocide means to kill a group. And that's how the word was originally defined by a guy called Raphael Lemkin, who came up, he invented the word, and he wrote the first UN Convention on Genocide in that passed in 1948, which Canada's obligated to follow. And he said, it's when you go out to kill a group. Well, the US and Canada and Britain were very worried about that because he had three definitions, cultural, biological, physical genocide. Cultural genocide is when you go out and stop them from speaking their language or having the kids you know, brothers and sisters meet, breaking up families, in other words. That's just as genocidal as shooting somebody, because over the long run, it kills a group, kills off a whole culture, as we see happens all over Canada. Uh, biological genocide, things like sterilization programs, forced abortions, things that they were doing routinely in Canadian residential schools and hospitals. Physical genocide is the one we all know about. You shoot people, or you show, throw them in gas ovens, or you uh, kill them like you heard uh, Irene Fable describing the baby being thrown in the oven at that Catholic school in, in 1944 in Saskatchewan. Um, but when the Americans and Canadians and British found out about this, and you know that darling of the liberal uh, uh, culture in Canada, Lester Pearson, who uh, you know who was Prime Minister in the 60s, he's the one who engineered this. They said, "Wait a minute, hold the bus there." That definition, uh, definition of genocide could indict all of us because, yeah, we're denying the culture of Native people in these Indian schools. So they got on board. They rewrote the Genocide Convention to what it is now, where genocide is not seen as biological or cultural. It's simply physical. And they changed the, the, uh, the wording. Compare these two wordings. Raphael, Raphael Lemkin. 
By genocide, we mean the destruction of a nation or a group. Simple, clear, direct. The UN Convention on Genocide definition after it was reworked. Genocide means any of the following acts with the intent to destroy a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group. Intent. They insert that word. So it's like saying murder isn't when you kill somebody. Murder is when you have the intent to kill someone. In other words, it isn't an act anymore. It's a state of mind. So that way, any murderer can get off, just like any government and church in the world now gets off. And that's why Bergoglio felt safe about using the word genocide, because by that, their understanding, and all the courts in their corporate system back them, their understanding was, no, no, we, had, we maybe had the intent, but we didn't necessarily kill them. It's a huge loophole that they drive their murderers bus through and get away with all these crimes. Now, of course, he also got away with it. And note this, folks. Remember, he said apology. And that's the other word I want to look at. Apology precedes getting off the hook because it's not I'm sorry under the law. Look it up in the Webster's Dictionary. It has nothing to do with I'm sorry. It says to defend an action or someone else's action. It's defending yourself, justifying yourself, rationalizing, legitimating what you did and getting off the hook from it. The apology is made and then he he's feel free. He's free to use the word genocide. Yes, we did it because there's no consequence anymore. It's just like what the churches did in Canada. And uh, by the way, the Canadian churches were ordered under pressure by the Canadian government to fork over something like, well, in the case of the Catholic Church, $250 million. They paid $1.2 million. You see, they get off the hook because it's not enforceable because the criminals are still in power. That's the reality. So it's very important to understand the meaning of the word apology and genocide because it's not as it's used. It's basically a way for the killers to get off the hook and to keep doing it. So um, we have in our common law training workshops, in our republic citizenship schools, we train people about the meaning of words. We educate them. Because if you don't understand what you're saying, it'll be used against you. I've had friends killed. I've seen my friends killed. I've seen language killed in the same way. We were, 20 years ago, we were the only people using the word genocide. It was a banned word in the Canadian culture. Now everyone's using it because it's been tamed and changed and nullified. It's kind of like dead cultures produce dead language. Nothing can change. Nothing can be fruitful. All our dead culture can do is kill and lie and continue to do it. And so um, before going into the break, I'm going to ask a question. How do you kill a dead thing? Something that's as dead as our culture that keeps producing death and lies. How do you do it? What do you do? Well, following our good friend Jesus' prescription, leave the dead to bury their dead. Come follow me. And what that meant is get out of the dead city. Leave Sodom. That Otherwise, you're dead too. And you become not necessarily physically dead, but dead in your mind and heart and soul the longer you reside in it. And we see that every day. And I've got graphic examples of that every day, of how quickly people fall away because their hearts and minds aren't in this, because they don't own their hearts and minds. They don't own the horror of knowing that children are being killed as we speak and saying, I can't live in this culture and allow them to do that. I've got to do something or I will die as a moral being. So if you don't want to die, don't be like the people of Sodom, because don't forget, Lot looked around. God said, uh, okay, if you find 10 honest people, I'll spare the city. Kind of laughing up his sleeve, knowing that he wouldn't find any. Uh, which I always find amusing seeing these comic uh, messages in the Bible. But Lot looked around and there wasn't one person. So remember what happened to Sodom, folks. Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to listen to another recording. And by the way, these are um, the voices you're hearing, the voices of the Canadian genocide, were part of the uh, common law court trial that prosecuted and forced from office Pope Benedict, 2012-2013. And you can see all that online, murderbydecree.com, under the ITCCS archives. We're going to play this uh, clip, and I'll be back after that. And uh, I spent five years in the, uh, well, the Canadian government calls the residential schools, but really these were prisoner of war camps. I was one in the one called the Mohawk uh, Institute. Starved us, beat us, froze us, and uh, it, it was horrific. There was no controls in the place. 
kids were always getting beat up or being put through various torture uh, uh, rituals. A lot of the kids were tortured in there. They were made to hang off uh, hot pipes until uh, they couldn't hold on anymore and they just fell to the floor from the roof. And uh, they were beaten. Whenever someone felt like it, made to hold on to electric fences that were And the ministry found out I was pregnant and they told me to have an abortion. And after I have the abortion to have a tubal ligation so I won't have any more children. I said if I didn't didn't um, have a tubal ligation, then I would never see my daughter Patricia again. Furnace going burning 24/7, which was totally out of bounds, and, uh, and me and a friend uh, witnessed uh, uh, some. The uh, sisters or brothers uh, taken uh, look like little bodies under uh, white uh, wrappings or white cloth, and uh, putting into the uh, uh, putting into the uh, furnace. And the queen came and visited visited for about three days, uh, two three days. I don't know how long it was. I think it was about three days actually, and a lot of children went missing there. Many children uh, that that weren't cooperative, um, like myself, uh, wasn't cooperative, and they were put into uh, the uh, with the children who were sick with was uh, at the end of the uh, dormitory. They kept the sickies there, the ones who were sick with tuberculosis, and um, they they put me and my brother Ernie in with with the ones who were sick because, uh, because we wouldn't comply. In the same room with people who had TB, um, they didn't separate but us. Then we were forced to play with them. The nuns made us play with those kids. We didn't want to get sick either, but they, they were forcing us to play with those kids. And also, they made some of them sleep with the other kids. I would have loved to have seen the, uh, the perpetrators uh, severely punished for all of this. And I would the, the greatest thing I'd, I would want to see is the Church of England get barred from practicing in Canada. It's just insane. Like, you don't murder children and get away with it. And I work every day to protect children, and it just really bothers me that, that so many of our children have been killed. And, and nothing's ever been done about it. Like, you read about it, and, and there's information on it all over the place, but nothing's ever been done about it. So why should these people, the churches and the government, and Indian Affairs, were all in on this as well? Why should they get away with killing our children? It's just not right, and something needs to be done about it. And we're back. That last voice was Cheryl Squire. She was one of the nine Mohawk elders in the Grand River Territory at Brantford, Ontario, who invited me in early in 2011 to come and conduct a dig there at what's called the Mush Hole. Called the Mush Hole not because of the mushy food, which is kind of the official line, but because there was a hole out back that I looked at. It was a cistern where they used to put children to punish them, underground cistern. And um, Del Riley, who also spoke, and just now, and Geronimo Henry and other survivors used to take the children out of that underground cistern, and their, quote, bodies were mush. So that's why it's called the mush hole. One meaning for the survivors, another for official Canada. Anyway, Charlotte, uh, I'm sorry, Charlotte, uh, Cheryl Squire, who you last heard, she was one of the original elders. She is the one who, when we did the excavations at the mush hole, she turned the soil. She and Bill Squire, her ex-husband, and they're both dead now. Uh, there was a complete cleanup done. The uh, guy who identified the bones, Dr. Don Ortner at the 
Smithsonian Institute in Washington. He identified the bones we found as that of a young girl around five years old. He said he wanted to come up the next month. He was dead that same month. Quote, heart attack. I could go down a list of person after person who is involved in a movement who's dead now than most of them are, especially if they're Aboriginal. And the reality is, is that that's what we're dealing with. It is not a crime that's stopped. It's a crime that's going on. And if you stand in the way of that crime, you will die or you'll suffer terribly or you'll go through what I'm going through, which is kind of a living death. And, uh, you know, I never talk about it much because, frankly, the level of fear is we just scare everyone off. But the reality is that when you take on this beast, you are in its target, in its... Um, what are those things called in a telescopic range side to target hair? Anyway, that's what happens to you. You get in their line of vision, and the only way you can counter that is to lose your fear. And fear is about selfishness. It's not about, it's not some kind of absolute thing. Everyone's talking about fear all the time. They need to combat it. You can't overcome fear. It's always with you. You can get outside the selfish mindset where you're always worried about yourself become selfless and worried about those children and be outraged that they did this, got away with it, and they're still getting away with it, and then say, bring it on. I don't care what happens to me. What else are you going to do to me? And this was always my attitude. You know, you've taken my kids, you've taken my livelihood, you've blackballed me across the country. Bring it on. You want to kill me? I'll become a martyr and it'll help the cause. Go right ahead. So once you get to that point, they can't really touch you. All they can do is isolate you and try to discredit you and get everybody afraid of you, which is usually works, especially in a place like Canada. But the corner is beginning to be turned just because of the, the weight, the sheer weight of their evil and corruption is bringing them down. And we, you know, like David and Goliath, we have landed a few good shots, haven't brought them down, but certainly caused them to stumble. And the people at the top are the craziest and the most confused. That's the thing to remember. I think Bergoglio admitting to genocide was a desperate measure on his part. Um, and, you know, for, for other reasons, we can get into future shows. But ultimately, they don't matter. What matters is the voices of people like you just heard. William Coombs, who you heard, my brother who died and uh, was murdered for seeing Queen Elizabeth take those kids out of the Kamloops school. And... Um, you know, those are the voices we've got to remember. And before we get into this lecture on the nature of the Vatican that I gave at Oxford, or was to give at Oxford University, I want you to, to share. And, and by the way, uh, I should mention Peter Yellowquill is not with us today uh, for security reasons and because we want to organize a m more complete presentation of what he has to say, not crammed into 40 minutes on a radio show, but a complete presentation of his witness of mass murder at United Church and Catholic Residential Schools in Manitoba, where he was incarcerated. He's one of our few remaining living Indigenous uh, allies who went through this whole history with us. And so we wanted to make sure Peter was safe and that his full story is presented. He will be on in future shows once we pre-record and do other interviews with him. Uh, that's why he's not with us today, but he is in spirit. And I remember one of the things, some quotes from him, he said, when I first talked to him, we used to walk around the, the grounds of the death camp where he was interned in Brandon, run by the United Church, he said, the screams never stopped. The screams of children never stopped all night. Imagine that. Would you be able to sleep ever again? Those screams emanating in your head. And another one, Pierre Kruger, I remember I sat down with him. He was excavating the mass graves. He's a Osoyas Indian. He too is dead now. Um, he was excavating the mass graves at the Catholic residential schools. And he said to me, and this is in our film, Unrepentant, which you can see online, murderbydecree.com. Pierre Kruger said, his voice was breaking when he said that. He said, who's going to listen? Who's going to care? Not one of our own people will stand up and carry this fight all the way. God, I hate doing this. He was just so exhausted and said, I hate doing this. And just like me, I hate doing this, folks, because it's constant pain. But I also love doing it because it's my purpose. And it saved lives and will save lives in the future. And what better way to live and what better way to die than bringing down this monster. And I invite all of you into that struggle. Now, we're going to listen to this program, uh, or rather this recording of the program I did at, uh, well, years ago we broadcast this, but it was to be the lecture I gave at Oxford University. and. Please take the law that you're going to see posted tomorrow at murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates. Take it, use it, write to us, 
concerning how to use it and how to use it as a way to take back our nation and fight the corporatocracy that has condemned us all to death and to living death. Go to murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates for the notice, the YouTube broadcast that's going out tomorrow, and this warrant. Write to us, Republic National Council at protonmail.com. Stay strong, stay clear, get on board. Here is the lecture, and after that, the conclusion of our show. I thank you, friends. This is Kevin Annie, Eagle Strong Horse. Good evening, I'm Kevin Annett, and tonight I'm going to give you a lecture that I was to present to the Oxford Union, which is the oldest debating society in the world. In April 2016, I was invited to come there in Oxford University in England and debate a cleric of the Catholic Church over the issue. Uh, funnily enough, the topic was, is there any good in the Roman Catholic Church? Well, as so often happens on these occasions, the Invitation to me was unexplainably withdrawn about two weeks before the event, and the debate between me and him never happened. So I thought it would be good to post online for the world to see exactly what I was going to say that night. Good evening. Let me begin by saying what a pleasant surprise it is to be able to join you all here tonight. The last time I tried to give a public talk in England at a London rally to protest child trafficking by church and state, your privately run UK border agency saw fit to arrest, fingerprint, jail me, and then finally deport me from your country without giving a reason at all. So be that as it may, and it usually is, I especially want to thank you for having me here tonight, having the courage to have me here tonight. Tonight's topic for debate is framed rather tellingly. Is there any good in the Roman Catholic Church? And assumingly by that, is meant its holding company, the Vatican Incorporated. Well, the very wording of the subject's interesting because it implies that, no, there isn't any good at all. Let's search for some. Of course, trying to locate integrity in a corporation is like looking for love in a brothel. So perhaps the question of tonight's debate's already been answered. My job's done, we can all go home. In any event, the title of the main event tonight is a bit confusing, beginning with the term good which is, after all, a completely relative and morally ambiguous term. The Spanish conquistadors and their slaughter-blessing Catholic priests thought that they were doing good when they wiped out millions of non-Catholic people for their own good. The Vatican's Inquisition that barbecued and tortured to death Christians who disagreed with Rome was officially entitled an auto de fe, which means act of faith. Even the present so-called liberal Pope Francis, Jorge Bagaglio, speaks of the goodness and zeal of the Franciscan missionaries who worked to death thousands of Aboriginal men, women, and children on Catholic slave plantations in California. Well, some things never change. Bergoglio also recently pardoned some 10,000 of his own child-raping priests, no doubt in the same spirit of doing good, at least good for his own institution. Human beings, especially when goaded on and justified by religion, always adorn their crimes in a halo of goodness. I've had personal experience of what I speak about. For over 20 years in Canada, I've lived and worked and documented the alongside these folks who have lived through the story, the reality of genocide in Canada, perpetrated mostly by Catholic-run Indian residential schools, where over 60,000 children died. Half of these children never came back because of, at the hands of the priests and nuns, they were ritually tortured, routinely starved, trafficked, experimented upon, flogged, gang-raped, and killed en masse with smallpox and tuberculosis. Not one Catholic priest has ever gone to trial for any of these crimes, nor will they. These killers are above the law as it stands now. And having had the misfortune of speaking with enough of these scum, I know that these complicit clergy are still convinced that they were only trying to do good to the little brown savages by killing their bodies to save their souls, to quote their buddy Thomas Aquinas, one of the founding theologians of the Catholic Church. So perhaps what we need to do is redefine the term good in a better way, using this simple definition. To do good means to do no harm to others and to let them be themselves. Of course, under that definition, you immediately disqualify the, and condemn the Roman Catholic Church, which has killed more people than any institution in human history. 
The Church of Rome's body count is well over 50 million corpses, ever since it was made a legal corporation by the Emperor Constantine in the year 317. All right, all right, that may all be true, sputtered the defenders of Rome. So nobody's perfect. But look at all the charitable works the church does all the time. Isn't that good? Well, in that sense, perhaps tonight's topic for debate should have been entitled instead, Was There Any Good in Pablo Escobar, the head of the criminal syndicate known as the Medellin Drug Cartel? Because Pablo engaged in lots of charitable good works for the poor folks of Colombia, just like the Roman Catholic Church, of which he was a dues-paying member. Pablo used his ill-gotten loot to build shelters for the homeless, playgrounds for some slum kids, and soup kitchens for the hungry. Of course, that charitable money was covered in blood and paid for by the early deaths from drug addiction of the very same people he was helping, but still, he was doing some good, wasn't he? Now, my analogy between Pablo Escobar and the Vatican is more than fitting, since not only are the members of the same club, but also the Vatican Bank is heavily invested in the international drug cartels as well as the arms and human trafficking industries that go along with it. GMO companies, Big Pharma, the biggest small arms company in the world, Beretta Limited, even dozens of online internet porn companies, all of these 100% Vatican investments pay for the goodies doled out to those deserving poor people who kiss the claw that feeds them. But let's take on directly the suggestion that the Roman Catholic Church, as the world's richest and least accountable corporation, plays a major role in providing charitable sustenance to the world's needy. Let's ask, what percentage of the Church's annual revenue actually goes towards charitable works? Well, it's an important question, not only for the debate tonight, but because the only legal basis for the Church to be exempt from paying taxes under the Law of Nations is that they must devote all, not some, but all, of their collected revenue for either the advancement of religion or charitable works. Well, right there, you cannot go to the Roman Catholic Church unless someone wants to explain what money laundering for the mafia, buying cruise missiles for third world dictators, or issuing routine bribes to politicians and governments all over the world have to do with either religion or charity. What percentage of the Catholic Church's revenue goes towards charity? Actually, less than 1% at least in America. For, tellingly, that's the only country in the world where the Church consistently publishes any of its financial records. After all, the Vatican is a closed, self-governing, totally unaccountable body, like any secret criminal society. But that inconvenient, lingering notion of a separation of Church and State found in the American Constitution requires that even the Catholic Church has to create an appearance of transparency. And so, according to the U.S. government, in the year 2013, The Roman Catholic Church in America had a net revenue of $13.4 billion. And that's just in one country, where only about 15% of the world's Catholics live. By projection, the annual income of the Vatican must be in the hundreds of billions of dollars, not just from all those collection plates, from those saps, but also from its massive global investment portfolio and its secret financial concordat agreements with over 100 governments, that channel a regular percentage of your tax money into the Vatican Bank and all of its criminal behavior. But coming back to America, the one country where a light is shone on the murky underworld of Vatican finances, according to the same self-audit of the Catholic Church, of the $13.4 billion raked in during 2013, only 1.1% of it went to charity. But since half of that amount came from government grants to Catholic aid societies, in reality, A whopping 0.6% of the income went from the bank accounts into charities. But since those charities are mostly owned and operated by the church itself, it just means that one hand of the octopus is feeding the other. Quite brilliant, don't you think? One half of 1%, friends. The truth is that the Roman Catholic Church is not a force for charitable works. Just look at the books. It's, in fact, a huge criminal racket a money-sucking corporation that kept afloat by every taxpayer in the world. Okay, so let's turn to the other basis for the church not paying a dime of taxes, the advancement of religion. What percentage of its time and money goes towards advancing its particular, and I might say extremely violent, religious creed? Less than 10%. That's the time each week a priest spends conducting prayers, masses, or catechism classes, according to the church itself. According to a statement from the Vatican's governing College of Cardinals, 
who in 2014 issued an internal report concerning the training and ordination of its priests. The main job of the clergy, according to the cardinals, is the material and social upkeep of the church, guarding the building, the safeguard of its traditions and operations, and the expansion of its income and membership. Like in any big corporation, somebody somewhere tell me where God, let alone Jesus Christ, enters into that whole mess. Okay, strike two. In case you didn't know, that's a baseball term. I don't play cricket. The third and final strike against the Roman Catholic Church, and you got to watch out that for that term because the word Catholic means universal, which it does not. The final strike against the Catholic Church lies in its real and not imagined nature. Once its enormous pretense and lie is pulled back and we see it for what it is historically and today. But to do so and to pierce the mental fog surrounding the Vatican Incorporated, we have to realize that the papacy is not a Christian church at all. On the contrary, it is in every respect a cult of emperor worship derived from late 3rd century Rome, not from the historic Jesus, not even from the early Christian church. This fact is crucial if we are to deal with the mental confusion of many people, atheists included, who ponder helplessly, but how can a body that preaches about the love of Jesus cause mass murder, genocide, and institutionalized child rape? Of course, the simple answer to that is that it's always the worst child rapist in town who has the most sterling reputation. The latter is needed as a cloak by any crook. The bigger the felony, the sweeter the coating. Talk, my friends, is easy, especially from a pulpit. But let's not forget what Jesus himself warned, quote, Many false prophets will come in my name and say, I am the Christ. But do not be fooled. By their works, you shall know them. Bingo. By their works, you shall know them. Well, we can see the works of the papacy all too well. Conquest, brutality, just wars, genocide, inquisition, and the crushing of the human spirit. And it all began when the Roman emperors Aurelian and Constantine created the Roman Catholic Church on the murdered bones of the early Christian Church. The church was an extension and continuation of that other big killing machine called the Roman Empire. Proof of this, you don't have to look any further than the Pope's official title, which is Pontifex Maximus, which in Latin means the Great Bridge, between guess where, heaven and earth. That was the Latin title of the emperors of Rome, starting with Aurelian in the year 275, who also assumed the title Dies et Dominus, means God and Master. One man who's become God. Well, first that was the emperor, but now today to a Catholic, it's the Pope. Christ is no longer the link to God, but a man is. Elected and elevated blasphemously over humanity, even over God, by other old men in funny hats. Well, not surprisingly, every newly elected Pope is also given the title Vicari Christi, which is even more blatant. In Latin, it means the replacement of Christ, the one who replaces Christ. In black and white, it's right there. Catholicism, papism, is the replacement of Christianity, an empire of conquest and wealth relying on the means of the world and not the way of Christ. Just look at the body count. And listen to these admissions of guilt right from the horse's mouth, or I should say ass, Statements from various popes down the centuries that have never been contradicted or repudiated by any of their successors. Pope Boniface, in 1302. We declare it is necessary for every human creature to be subject to the Roman pontiff. Pope Leo, in 1520. The Pope is Christ himself on earth. Pope Pius, in 1929. Fascism is simply the doctrines of our faith made the law and government. Pope John, in 1962. No man may enter into Christ unless he be led there by the sovereign pontiff. Pope John Paul in 1996, have no fear when men call me Christ on earth, for I am he. Pope Benedict in 2008, you need not go to Christ for salvation, come to me. Pope Francis in 2016, Christ made himself sin, made himself the devil. That's new. For our salvation, only the church and its magisterium can claim holy infallibility. Have you had enough? I know I have. Well, is it any wonder that such a power-obsessed, megalomaniac religion makes itself unaccountable, sees nothing with its crimes, and uses the image and words of Christ himself to delude and soak its millions of dupe followers to believe that a bit of a communion wafer 
or a papal blessing or the right amount of cash delivered into church coffers will buy their way into heaven as if one can. Well, unfortunately, I saw it for myself when I was last in Rome in 2011. Right there in the Vatican Museum, a display board for buying indulgences, just like out of Martin Luther's day. Special papal blessings cost you only 150 euros. The more you spend, the closer you get to heaven. Although, be warned, apparently, according to the sign, apparently God prefers credit cards to cash. How right when Pope Leo in 1520 said, This myth of Christ has served us well. Well, the most dangerous group in the world is a super wealthy cult that sees itself as God, superior to everyone, and therefore justified in doing whatever is needed to protect itself and rule the world. A cult, in other words, like the Church of Rome. What other, what other being than a cult can operate according to a criminal policy like Crimen Solicitanus, which has been binding on all Catholics since the year 1929? That policy states that whenever a child is raped or otherwise harmed by a priest, the police are not to be told, the victim is to be silenced, and if anyone speaks of this, they are excommunicated, thrown into hell for snitching on a rapist. Clearly, the god of Rome, like the Mafia, cannot tolerate a snitch. Better instead to operate under a global criminal conspiracy to aid and abet child rapists and killers than to cost the church a lawsuit or save a child's life. Heaven forbid. And yet, despite all of this criminal arrangement, the world keeps wondering why there's so much child rape within the Church of Rome. Are we all that blind? Do we really think a lion isn't going to eat a gazelle? Well, John Acton, a British politician, said, Absolute power corrupts absolutely. He was referring to the Church of Rome when he made that statement, something conveniently left out of the history books. The Church of Rome is absolutely corrupt, but it also corrupts whoever is near to it, like all who attend it, who fund it, who associate with it, or rent its halls, or smile on its policies, or look the other way at all its public relations gestures. All who do so partake in that corruption. And under the law of God and mankind, those human accessories are equally guilty of all its crimes. The only good that can be said to come out of this most violent, corrupt, and anti-Christ body in history is how its evil awakens people to the need for a return to the simple words, witness, and spirit of Jesus himself, a spirit that has always been the chief adversary of the Church of Rome. Jesus founded a community of called-out people, a remnant not of this world, a congregation, not a church. Nowhere did Jesus speak of popes, of bishops, of rituals and ceremonies by which someone would mediate him and God to others. He said that the kingdom of heaven lay inside each of us, not outside in a communion wafer or a religious ritual. That inner kingdom of Christ alone is the guide of all true Christians who must come out from and be separate from all these vile, false and violent churches that deny God in practice and kill children in practice. And that's the task of any deluded soul still caught in the fatal grip of Rome and its blasphemous illusions and depravities. As America's founding father said, we hold this truth to be self-evident. And one of those men, the second U.S. president, John Adams, said, quote, a free government and the Roman Catholic religion can never exist together in any nation or country. Liberty and popery are opposed, unquote. The nature of an ancient corporate evil like the Church of Rome does not change over time. It simply alters its appearance because it comes out of the dark ruler of this world, the one whom Jesus said, he is a lie from the beginning, for he is the father of lies, Satan. It's a good thing to free ourselves from a lie as huge as Roman Catholicism and as criminal. As freeborn men and women, we are made for the truth. And when we recognize it, our hearts and our minds breathe freely and we return to our natural sense of liberty and independence. From that place of freedom, we are empowered to take action to stop criminals in every high place, whether they be popes or presidents or prime ministers. For we, the people, are the source of all sovereignty, of government, of law, and of religion. We can and must stop and arrest and confine child-raping priests when the police and courts refuse to do so. We can and must shut down the churches that traffic children and have hidden their crimes over centuries, like the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church of England, the United Church of Canada, all of these criminal bodies. For the life of one child is more sacred than all the fanfare and rituals of any church anywhere. Well, Jesus had his own prescription for child killers. He said, Whoever would harm one of these innocent ones should have a millstone placed around his neck and be thrown into the sea. 
Well, I wonder what Jesus would say about an entire institution that mocks God, murders with impunity, rapes and murders children, and protects those who do so. Is there a millstone that is big enough to sink such an institution? Yes, there is. It is we, the people. I thank you.